This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got another special guest interview for you, and that is with Greg Kokel. And I just got to tell you right from the jump, when I told my Foxhole guys that Greg Kokel was coming on the podcast, they were just, I mean, giddy with anticipation and for good reason, because this guy is a heavyweight in the world of apologetics. But if you're not very familiar with him, let me give you a little bit of his background. This guy has his MA in philosophy of religion and ethics from Talbot School of Theology and an MA in Christian apologetics from Simon Greenleaf School of Law. But back in the early 90s, in 1993, he founded an organization called Stand to Reason. So this organization is dedicated to helping Christians express their viewpoints and to defend them, right? And he wants them to be able to defend them using knowledge, wisdom, and character. And we certainly get into that in the podcast, but there are two books. They're, they're kind of seminal books to people in this area of apologetics. One of them is one that he wrote recently back in 2017, the story of reality, how the world began, how it ends and everything important that happens in between. This is a book that I just read recently. It's a fantastic book and we certainly get into that in the podcast. But the big reason why I was turned on to uh, the work of Greg Kokel is the book Tactics. And that book uh, just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. It was written back in 2009. It's called Tactics, A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions. And guys, a lot of apologetics books are more descriptive apologetics. They kind of give you answers to certain questions and things like that, and they're fantastic books. But this is, you know, no pun intended, a tactical book. This is a tactical way of expressing your viewpoints and your faith, but also defending them. Because the thing is, guys, and you know this to be true, most Christians just think, oh, I just got to be nice. Like this idea that if you're just nice, people will just show up at your door like, hey, who's this Jesus guy? You seem real nice and uh, Jesus is a part of your life. So what do you do? But guys, we don't live in that world, that, that popcorn marshmallow world. Like we just don't live there, right? We live in a world where people are looking at us as bigots just because of the things that we believe. But the thing about it is, and one thing that Greg Kokel does a tremendous job of, is he teaches Christians to be on the offensive, but not to be a jerk. Like, that's not the point. The point isn't to embarrass somebody. That, that's not the point at all. But the point is to get your point across in a cogent manner where you can actually take control of the conversation. Because at the end of the day, this is apologetics, but it is evangelism. And, and he certainly talks about that here in the podcast about how he, where he feels he falls on that line. But guys, just listen to this podcast closely. And there's going to be a lot of sections that you need to go back. Just, you know, go back 15 seconds, go back 30 seconds, because you just need to hear how these thoughts coalesce in his brain and how they come out of his mouth. Because the thing about it is most of us Christians get really, really scared when we get challenged. We're like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And then someone gives you one thing, one sentence or one kind of sound bite that they heard from their favorite democratic politician or something like that. And then you just crumble. You just melt. Oh yeah. You know, I don't think abortion's right. What about in the case of rape and incest? And you're like, ah, and you run away from the conversation. That's not what we're here to do. Right? Remember the lion of Judah is at our side. We talk about that all the time in this podcast. And so Greg Kokel is one of the most tremendous resources that you could have to be able to defend your faith. And so without further ado, guys, let's get into it. Greg Kokel, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Well, thank you, Kyle. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. I am as well. This is highly anticipated. I told you off the air that I've got a lot of friends really looking forward to this, so we'll get right into it. But from the beginning, we'll start just as broadly as we can. You're obviously known as an apologist, one of the right. best, and you teach a lot of other people to use apologetics and to use argumentation. But for you, just in a generic sense, why did you decide to get into apologetics? What, what attracted you to that? 
Well, uh, it's actually not very romantic. Uh, there were two things, I think. When I became a Christian in, in uh, 1973, I lived in Westwood area, the west end of Los Angeles, right close to Westwood where UCLA is. In Westwood Village at the time, there were lots and lots of people that would rove the streets. It was kind of hip neighborhood and um, people go to dinner and hang out. And, and it turned out that period of time, there were all kinds of people on the streets selling their philosophy whether it was Jehovah's Witnesses or Hare Krishna or some new age group or some crazy Christian cult group, whatever. And so uh, in my free time, I just hang out where the action was. And after I became a Christian, I just started talking to people about Christ on the street. It wasn't hard because everybody is talking to you about their trip. And I realized that I was ill, ill-equipped to be able to um, to prosecute the, the issue of the gospel and the challenges that there were they were offering me, and I thought, gee, I better learn more about it. So there was kind of a pressure based on need. Uh, in my case, I did not become a Christian in virtue of, of apologetics. I have a lot of buddies in the it, that, that are do what I do, and uh, and they became Christians because of apologetics. Jay Water Wallace is a great example, or, or Lee Strobel, for example. But uh, and that's why they're in it because that's what brought them to Christ. But that was not my situation. So that was w- one part of it. And I started hanging with a group there in Westwood Village. Actually, it was a Christian community that I moved into and lived for two and a half years, and that gave me a great opportunity um, to start learning some of the reasons why Christianity is actually and profoundly and deeply, capital T, true. It's the way reality is structured. That's the real world. And uh, the other thing is just really a personal thing. I think my mind works that way. There's a lot of people that just are more affective, Kyle. They're just kind of into the touchy-feely. Right. And I could be, look, at I, I, in certain circumstances, I could be really emotional, okay? And, uh, okay, just, uh, just to be <laughs> totally transparent, I cry at a lot of movies. <laughs> okay. But apart from that, I'm pretty much a down-to-business guy. I'm like, what's the problem? How can I solve it? Let's get this. Let's, I want to man up to the charge, man up to the situation. Let's get it done. And what's the best way to get it done? And if you got some other ideas about how to get it done, let's look at it. No, that's not going to work. And here's why it's not going to work. So I just have this native capability of moving towards the problem uh, generally and trying to solve it and get it out of the way. And to be able to see the most uh, streamlined way to get there. And I feel like that's a lot what I do in 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 my writing and in my speaking is i learn from the smart guys we translate we take the good stuff and then we try to throw the ball so people can catch it but we we try to trim off the edges a lot so we don't there's not a lot of confusing stuff in there we try to get right to the point we lay it out really clearly so it's very easy to follow. It seems to me, at least. Now, some of the stuff is more complex, of course, and it's not as easy to follow as more simple things, but we make it as easy as possible given the topic. And so I just kind of have this mentality, this mindset that um, that it's just, let's just go at it. Let's take care of it. Let's figure it out. What's the lay of the land? How do we maneuver here? How do we How do we get the job done? apologetics really appeals to me in that way. 
Absolutely. And I think you and I are going to get along just fine because we process things a lot the same way. And so the good thing about what what you've done in terms of apologetics is you're not just someone that values it. You're someone that puts it into practice. And and before we get into a couple of the books that you've written to help people with that, back in the early 90s, you founded Stand a Reason, which is an organization right. that essentially promises three steps to confident and attractive Christianity. And those three in order are number one, or maybe not in any particular order, number one, knowledge, know what you believe. Number two, wisdom, learn the best approach. And third is character, become a model to others. So why did you choose those three things as opposed to anything else? Yeah, well, it's an interesting story, question. And, uh, and the reason I, uh, the, I think people have um, a mistaken view about how some of these things that they look around them and see like, these are pretty big, these are cool, these are really making a difference, wow. They think that somebody sat down and figured, here's where I'm going. I've got this long-range vision. Here's the step-by-step process. I'm going to get it done. Um, but that isn't the way it happens. I heard a funny quote the other day. Um, uh, Mike Tyson said, um, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. Sure. Yep. <laughs> um, and I, Eisenhower said something about D-Day. You know, you got all your strategy out there, but the minute you land on the beach, everything changes because you're now in the midst of the conflict. And so in my case, though, uh, there was a motivation to be more effective with the capabilities that I had. Okay. It was, what is it that I do best? And this is my whole view of decision-making the will of God. I think it's a biblical view. You look at your gifts, you don't poke around listening for a voice or a nudge or something like that, trying to figure out what's God hinting at me to do. I don't think God hints in, in that sense. And that's not a biblical method anyway. So I looked at what can I do well? And it turns out what I did well was, was communicate in one way or another. And I hadn't written anything really at that point, a little bit, but not much, but I was getting started and I had been doing some speaking. And so I decided I want to make the best use of my gifts and, and um, so focus. And so that's why we started Stand a Reason. But I realized uh, with some counsel that Stand a Reason had to be bigger than just me having a secretary that helped me travel around and speak. It had to be bigger than me. And that was really a good point. And so I began to think, well, then what do I want to accomplish in another person's life? What do, what's, what's the bigger picture? What is the, the legacy I want to leave behind? What is the mark I want to make? And that's when, and this was, by the way, I'd say two years into Stand to Reason before we developed the motif that you just described, the knowledge, wisdom, character motif. But I, I realized that, it, that if probably the best way to characterize what we do is to build ambassadors. So you need to understand, Kyle, that my chief motivation, I'm just talking about me, is not evangelism. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some people introduce me at an event. They'll say, and here's Greg Kokel with a great heart for evangelism. Well, I never <laughs> told them that, you know, right, it's right. amazing. They come, I'm a, um, I have two MAs, no PhD, but I get introduced as doctor all the time. And he's written dozens and dozens of books, which really isn't true. You know, anyway, people, <clears throat> they're doing their best, right? But the thing is, I don't have a heart for evangelism. I would never char characterize myself like that. I have plenty of friends that do. That's not me. I have a heart for discipleship. My heart is for the church and the building of the body of Christ. Now, when you build disciples, and that is the Great Commission in Matthew uh, 24, uh, Matthew, no, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew 28. That is the great commission. 
to make disciples. But of course, evangelism is a logical precursor to that. First, they have to become Christians before they can be discipled as Christians. Um, but then those disciples go out and evangelize and disciple more. Okay, so I see my role and my heartbeat in discipleship. <clears throat> so, so my goal is to want to build a certain type of person. And this all began to come together as we're doing our stuff. There's an important uh, message here, Kyle. It isn't like you get this great vision from God and then you spend your life fulfilling it. Some people may get that. That wasn't me. And uh, what I did is I saw a thing I could do better than what I'd been doing that was geared to my gifts. And I began to do it. And just like I was saying before, how can I organize this? How can I solve this problem? How can I, how can I put it together in a clear way that's easily transferable? How can I get down to business, so to speak? And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm working on. I need some way of characterizing what we do. And as I thought more and more about it, I thought, I'm building Christians. Our mission statement starts, we train Christians. Those are the first three words. And then I said, then I thought, what do we do? What do we train them to do? Well, you know, in the culture, there was a lot of uh, hostility and uh, there's a lot of, it still is, but in the, in the Christian culture, in our engagement with the rest of the culture, a lot of shrillness, okay? And that was the culture wars period before your time. And because you said you were like nine years, ninth grade when you went at 9-11. So this is back... Back in the before that, ten years before that, there was a lot of culture war mentality. Okay, a lot of conflict. Plus, I think the way Christians engaged was really shallow. So, what I wanted to see is our engagements to look more like diplomacy than D-Day. Okay, and um, and so that means the the approach of a diplomat or an ambassador, and that's the word that I landed on because it's a biblical, biblical word. Right. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Um, and so uh, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so I started working with that word. And it, I mean, in a way, it wasn't too glamorous. I was just sitting down at a table just at our office at Stand to Reason, very small affair at the time. And I'm just working with words and descriptions. And finally, it all fell in place after a few hours. What's an ambassador? Ambassador has to know a few things. So there's a knowledge component. I mean, if you think about an ambassador that the president would send out or a king would send out, well, they got to know something. They got to know the message that they're being sent out with, foundational. They have to be able to maneuver in conversations, okay? And um, they have to be diplomatic, okay? So there's a tactical wisdom that's involved there. And then finally, if they're if they're jerks while they're doing it, you know, this right. is really going to undermine the enterprise. So character is a s significant factor in the whole enterprise. Absolutely. And I think one of the outgrowths of that was obviously the book Tactics. Um, and so for those of our listeners, uh, Tactics, it's a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. That is on our list of 100 books every modern Christian man should read. My guys in my foxhole just finished reading that not too long ago, and it just celebrated its 10th anniversary. So congratulations on the 10th anniversary of that. And you Thanks celebrated it. Yeah, you celebrated it by releasing a new version with we a did. bunch more a bunch more content. But this is a, a tactical, obviously, apologize apologetics book, whereas a lot of apologetics books tend to be a little bit more descriptive, I would say, descriptive apologetics books. But can you give us an idea as to, you know, why you wrote more of a tactical approach and maybe anything that you've added um, to to the new edition in light of what's been going on the last 10 years? Sure. Uh, Kyle, the big thing is 
let me just try to think of this in military terms because I, I, I like military metaphors because I think they're really appropriate to what we do as long as they don't, they, uh, they convey an understanding, but not an attitude of engagement. All right. So like I said, we want it more like diplomacy than D-Day. Right. Um, however, when you're, when, okay, when you, when you have a military goal to accomplish, you have to not just know what that goal is, but you have to have, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a sense of the lay of the land. You need intel, and you have to have a plan of attack. You have to know what you're going to do. So, uh, what, 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 you know, I just watched Band of Brothers again the other day and how they, uh, in that famous scene on D-Day, they took out uh, those uh, 88s at Briarcourt Manor. And it's a magnificent tactical enterprise because here they are, they're totally outgunned, but they have a small band and they have it figured out. They work out the details of how they're going to execute, and then they did the job. And it was amazing what they accomplished. If you've seen the movie or read the book, it's just amazing. Um, and but this is what Christians don't have, Kyle. They don't have a plan. Right. Uh, they may they may have a, like a three steps to God kind of thing, but that's that's it, in my opinion, it's the wrong kind of plan. That is a helpful plan of explaining the gospel. Okay, great. This is how you kind of explain the gospel. Very good in that. But explaining the gospel is a very small part of the process. That is going to surprise some people. But think about it. Before there can be any harvest, there always has to be a season of gardening, right? right. You got to have a lot of gardening before you can before you can harvest the fruit. And uh, in the same way, a three steps thing, like steps to peace with God or four spiritual laws, in that case, four, it, those are those are good for the end game. You know, that's when you're mopping things up, so to speak. You're harvesting there. But it, now we got we, that's not gardening stuff. And we need to do gardening all the time. And especially nowadays, a lot more preparation, gardening, a working, working, working the field before you finally can, you know, back to military stuff, you know, breach the wall, break through the barriers, finish the job. Those those th three or four step things are finishing the job. They are getting to the finish line. And so this is where a lot of apologetic conferences were missing something, I thought, Kyle. And what they were missing was a bridge from the content to the conversation or a bridge from the scholarship to the relationship. And uh, that's what the tactical game plan provides. How do you get all of that information into play? Now, by the way, if you if you recall from our just earlier discussion about being an ambassador, this is dealing with the second part of being an ambassador. You get the knowledge. Okay, now how do you get it in play? How do you maneuver? How do you have the tactical wisdom, knowledge wisdom, to, to use the knowledge properly. And so what I constructed then is an actual game plan. And it's a three-step game plan. It's not complicated, but it is. it has turned out to be an unbelievably effective way of maneuvering in conversations, not getting to the, you know, closing the deal. This is not about hitting home runs. It's not about, <clears throat> pardon me, closing the deal. It's, it's, a, it's about, it's about getting on base uh, it's about getting into the batter's box even more appropriately here and then see what the Holy Spirit's going to do. And, you know, if we tell people, 
if you think about it, Kyle, now you and I are fairly aggressive people. Maybe a lot of your listeners are more aggressive as well. There's a whole lot of people who are not near as aggressive as we are. Right. And so if we tell them, here's how evangelism works, you tell them about Jesus and you get them to pray to receive Christ, they're going to go, man, that scares me. I'm not going to do that. Now, they won't tell you that, but that's what they're thinking. And they're going to sit on the bench. And the, the thing that has... Um, amazed me most, Kyle, about the response to the tactics book, which is subtitled A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions, because that's what it is, a game plan. Um, The thing that's amazed me the most is that people have said, uh, oh, uniformly, I, I hear the same line over and over and over again for the last 10 years. They've said, this book has changed my life. And, and other people have said, it set me free. Because it, it, it has given them a means to get engaged in a profitable way without stress and without pressure and without pressuring the other person and without having to have all the answers. Because in this plan, the other side is doing the much of the talking, especially at first, not us. We're not preaching. We're listening. We're asking questions and listening. And this has allowed all of those people that are so excited about what they learned in the book to get off the bench and get into play and start doing a little gardening. And that's the thing for most people. Uh, again, that is right. Most of the guys that I'm around are fairly forward, but then it is kind of funny, even some guys that are forward, that they'll be the first one to step up to maybe defend someone physically. When you get into some of the more mental aspects, they do feel like maybe they're just not equipped. But there was a, sure. a quote early on in your book that I really love. It's just make sure it's your ideas that offend and not you, that right. your beliefs cause the dispute and not your behavior. The thing that I've seen, Greg, is that so many people tend to struggle with this, especially those that study apologetics, because it's it's easy to come off as condescending, as a know-it-all, especially if you truly believe uh, right. the things that you think are correct and that you have all the answers. So how do you combat this, this you know, idea of coming out looking like you're hovering over the situation and you're just going to drop knowledge on people? Well, this is one of the easiest questions to answer. And the, the the best way to protect against preaching in the way that you're describing is not to preach. In other words, you don't make, you know, this is a generalization here, and there are exceptions to this as the game plan unfolds. But the mentality is, is you don't make statements. You ask questions. Let me say that again, because it's so important. You don't make statements. Okay, this is the way it is. And here's your, I know what your beliefs are and they're dead wrong. And here's the right thing. And you ought to believe what I believe. And there you uh, there you go. Well, that's, you know, that's Pickett's charge, right? You know, you're just going right into the gunfire and that's crazy. Um, instead, we start out as students of a person's point of view and we start asking questions in a very particular way. And notice, by the way, if you were an atheist, and, and and you and I just started this conversation, Kyle, and you said, well, I'm not a Christian, I'm an atheist. I said, really? What kind of atheist are you? It's okay. very different. Now, what did I do? Oh, I just showed interest in the other person's view. I didn't get defensive, but I tossed out a question. And guess what? When I asked the question, whose turn is it to respond? It's theirs. It's theirs. And by the way, there, I just asked a question. I got you to respond. And that's right. And so notice that questions create an interactive environment. 
and the pressure shifts if there is any pressure at that point it shifts off of the christian and on to the atheist and notice when i ask what kind of atheist are you by the way some people might think what kind of question is that an atheist is an atheist what's so hard about? well there are actually lots of different or there are a number of different kinds of atheists and they characterize their views in different ways and um, even though maybe most of them are alike it's all right just ask the question and see what they say and and when i do that that's i i'm asking that because that's the first step of my game plan but notice when i ask it i'm not intimidated i'm not shaken i'm not preaching i'm not telling him he's wrong I'm asking a question. The ball goes immediately back into his court, but in a way that's not pressuring necessarily. I'm curious in his point of view. And what else am I getting? I'm peeking over the ridge to get the lay of the land of the battlefield, so to speak, that I want to enter. I'm not barging over the top. I'm carefully looking around and seeing to seeing what am I up against here? Am I outgunned? Um, am I am, do I need reinforcements? You know, do I need to wait a little bit? I, I can't. Those are important questions to ask. But this is most people don't ask that. They just they just kind of blunder forward, and that's a good way to get yourself killed in an engagement in the military. And, uh, and the same thing true here. So notice how I'm not preaching in that, that simple instance. I'm just simply gathering more information. And by the way, if he, if he told me more detail about his point of view, um, I might say, okay, well, okay, I get it. And I was like, no, I just don't believe there's any God out there. There's no, you know, basically this, uh, this world is nuts and bolts. You know, it's like the empirical world. It's like, if I can't see it, smell it, taste it, or hear it, man, it ain't real. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, uh, <laughs> so now when I hear a statement like that, I have more questions. All right. I have them in, in my hip pocket. And, uh, <laughs> and I, uh, I'm going to say, can I, can you see your thoughts? No. Can you smell them? Can you taste? Are your thoughts real? Sure they are. Well, then it looks like there are some things in this world that don't fit that category. So that's another step. That's a little more advanced step. I'm trying to undermine his view, but I'm still using questions. Right. But if he's just going to tell me I'm just this basic materialistic atheist, I'm going to say, really? Okay, good. Why are you an atheist? What convinces you that atheism is true and there is no God? Okay, what's that? That's another question. Now I am asking for the reasons for his point of view. And again, I'm, I'm just curious. Why well, Most people aren't atheists, you know. If I was talking to you, Kyle, I'd say, Kyle, you know, um, most people aren't atheists. So uh, why are you an atheist? What convinces you there is no God? I'm curious. Then I'll let you talk. See what right. you say. I am not obliged at this point to refute you. Sure. I have not committed myself to that. I don't know if I can refute you because I don't know what your view is or why you hold it. Well, that's why it's so important to to use questioning strategies, and, and you've you've described it so well in this book. And and guys, if you haven't read the book yet, like we're not going to be getting into the nuts and bolts of the actual game plan. You've got to pick this up so that you can check it out yourself. But I've done sales training for people before, and I've just told people I was like, look, if you just ask questions, 
and then you answer questions with more questions, they will tell you what it is they need in order to buy. And so whether you're selling cars or insurance or gym equipment or whatever the situation is, the buyer or potential buyer will tell you what it'll take to get them to buy. But at the same time, you're not tricking anybody. You're not setting a trap for them necessarily so that they can give you that one response that elicits you know, the, the big ace of spades response that you have. But it is important to use that questioning strategy. There, there was another quote towards the end of the book, Greg, that I wanted to kind of get uh, get your a little bit deeper from you on sure. before we move on. It was this, it's since oppression and mayhem are neither religious duties for Christians nor logical applications of the teachings of Christ, violence done in the name of Christ cannot be laid at his door. This conduct might tell you something about people. It tells you nothing about God or right. the gospel. And so the interesting thing about this is I don't really hear a cogent response like that from Christians very often, whenever they bring up, you know, maybe it's honor killings in another religion. Maybe it's the crusades. Maybe it's the things that the Catholic church did, you know, hundreds of years ago, or even recently. Why do we not hear more Christians responding to the question of evil done in God's name in this way? Do you think? Well, I think the reason we don't hear it is because they don't know that this response. Um, but I, I heard once, that um, you can't hold a religion responsible for the crimes of its heretics. Right. Now, that's a clever way of putting it. You know, it's an aphorism, kind of a clever statement there that's easy to remember. But that's what my response that you just read is trading on, okay? And so people are angry at, 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 at Christianity because historically there have been Christians, I'm sorry, there have been people within Christendom who have done unchristian things, and then they generalize that to Christianity, okay? Well, that's a mistaken thinking, all right? And and if I, if I told if you, Kyle, is a head of a construction crew, and I was the boss of the company, and I told you to go out and um, you got to go out and remodel this house, and here are my instructions, and I write them down so they're very clear, okay? And um, then you go down and demolish the house. <laughs> you demo it, man. It's gone. And people complain to me. Now, in one sense, I, I, I'm the contractor, so the buck stops with me. But I just want you to think about the fault circumstances. It's not my fault, strictly speaking, because I didn't tell you to do that. I told you to do the exact opposite, and I have it in writing. So the fault lies with you, not with the contractor. And in the same way, um, there you mentioned honor killings, okay? I, I actually, that's Islam. And I don't know about the theological underpinnings of that. Uh, right. My suspicion is there is a legitimate theological underpinning for honor killings, but and that and that's not good for Islam. And there certainly is a, a theological underpinning for a violent jihad. It's standard in that religion. In fact, peacefulness, the idea of being a peaceful Muslim and deny violent jihad, at least in principle, is inconsistent with Islam right. when you study Islam. Um, so there, I think there's a legitimate beef. But when people look at things like the Crusades and the Inquisitions and and all and all kinds of stuff like that, which it's interesting, you got to go back, you know, 500 years to find serious marks against Christians of that sort, you know, um, long memories people have. But in any event, the um, but then I think the the issue can be raised, just like you read it from the book. Is, and here I'm going to use the tactical approach, and that is even when I'm making a point, I am going to try to use questions. 
So when somebody says, look at this terrible thing that Christians did, let's say the Crusades or um, uh, 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 let's call it the Inquisition because there's a lot of confusion about the Crusades started out as a defensive measure against Muslims. So Christians defending against Muslims attacking the holy city and butchering other Christians. So um, let's let's just say the Inquisition. What about the Inquisitions and all of that kind of stuff, you know? And and the answer is, let me ask you a question: Is this the kind of thing that Jesus commanded? Now I'm going to let them answer. Well, um, no, I don't think so. You're right; he didn't command it. Is it commanded anywhere else in the Scriptures that Christians ought to do this? No, it's not commanded anywhere in the scriptures. Well, they might say, well, Old Testament, they did this kind of thing. Well, wait a minute. I'm not talking about the Old Testament. It's a totally different circumstance. We're talking about Christianity, right? Yeah. Okay, so I'm talking about Christianity. That's New Testament stuff. By the way, I'm making a little bit of an artificial distinction here for the right. sake of this particular illustration because the, the, the Testaments do wet, uh, mold together in a very significant way. But for the purposes of this conversation, what matters is what Christians have done based on the dictates of Christianity. So that limits us to the New Testament. Makes my job easier. Do you know any place in the New Testament where this kind of behavior is commanded? Well, no, I can't think. Okay, so it's not a teaching of Jesus, right? No, it's not taught in the New Testament, no. So that when people who call themselves Christians do this kind of thing, are they really truly representing Christianity or not? Well, no, they're not. Notice, by the way, Kyle, everything I've done so far was pretty much a question, but I had a plan in my mind. That's how I know the direction to go with these questions on this issue. But notice how I'm bringing him, that person, into the conversation. And, and then I'll finally say, well, if what they did wasn't commanded by Jesus, and therefore it wasn't taught in the New Testament, and therefore is not consistent with Christianity, why are you holding this crime against Christianity? Right. And instead of those people who are acting inconsistent with Christianity. Now that's closing the deal. I'm closing the loop there, but I'm closing it with a question. I want him to button it up. Well, yeah, I get your point. Okay, that's a good point. And if I were being really, uh, really wanted to take another step, I said, okay, I, with this understanding, and thank you for seeing that. I'm glad you saw that. I'm, by the way, I'm role-playing with you now again, Kyle. I'm glad you saw that. Okay, great. Um, now, would, can, can I have your word about something? What's that? That you won't bring this objection up anymore against Christianity because you understand it's not fair. And then see what they say. Hope, I mean, that's what you want to do. Some of these people get a good answer. And then in the next conversation, they're bringing the same nonsense up again. Right. This is not honorable for them to do that. And so sometimes this question is helpful. Well, it's not honorable and it's also intellectually dishonest, but most people don't like to operate with any type of intellectual honesty meter. They don't like to be of above a certain amount. And, and that's the thing is, is guys, for those of you listening that have not read this book, you've got to go pick up this book because you, you actually have in that book, you've got a lot of kind of back and forth that you actually had. You actually start out the book with uh, a gal uh, that you were in the checkout line and she was wearing, uh, she was a Wiccan and kind of your interaction with her right, and it gives right. you the tools in your tool belt and it gives you uh, you know extra bullets for your gun in order to be able to use these conversations and so guys it is a must read you've got to pick that book up but another book that you read or that you wrote uh, years and years after the tactics book is a right. much different book um it's very different from tactics it's called the story of reality how the world began how it ends and everything important that happens in between and so 
I guess just briefly in your own words, can you just give us a, a very brief synopsis of the book? And then I want to kind of dig into a couple of the concepts that came forth from that book. Yeah, I'd be glad to. And you're right. It is a, um, uh, a very different kind of book. In fact, um, uh, it's interesting because given our knowledge, um, wisdom, character, motif, um, the second, the first book we just talked about falls in the wisdom area. Knowledge is an accurately informed mind. Wisdom is an artful method and character is an attractive manner. Tactics is wisdom and uh, an effective method. But this book, The Story of Reality, um, is a book about knowledge. And if we are going to defend Christianity, we better know what Christianity is. You'd be amazed, Kyle, about how uh, how little people understand about Christianity. And when I say Christianity here, I don't just mean, in a certain sense, the teachings of Jesus um, or the gospel, the gospel simple, uh, in, in, in its simple form, or the teachings of Jesus, which are broader. Because both the gospel and the teachings of Jesus are embedded in a larger understanding of what the world is like. And that's called, by the way, a worldview. And it's interesting that the gospel, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, um, did not did not start with Jesus loves you. You know, it starts curiously. The gospel of John goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. and The word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, this one called the word we learned few verses later is Jesus became a man in Jesus. But notice how John is taking the life of Jesus and placing it in the context of the entire story. He's the one who started all out in the beginning. And so what I wanted to do with the story of reality, the book, which the subtitle is how the world began, how it ends, (laughs) and everything important that happens in between. The reason that I wrote the book is I wanted to give followers of Christ and also tire kickers a a broader perspective. I wanted them to see that um, what Christianity is, in fact, is a picture of the world. It's a, 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 a to use maybe another metaphor, it is a map of the way reality is. It's a claim about the world that fits the world the way it really is. And this is why I call it the story of reality, because so many people are given, even Christians, to relativizing religious views. Oh, well, that's your faith. That's your belief. And they treat religion like a, like a fantasy that makes us feel better. Mark Marx said, you know, religion is the opiate of the people. Well, that's the way a lot of people think about it. And this is also the way a lot of Christians approach it. But one thing that I learned from Francis Schaeffer early on in the uh, in the 70s, as I read his material and when he was still alive, uh, is that that Christianity is true truth. It's the real McCoy. It's capital T truth. It is it is not just our truth. It is just like gravity is not just our truth. Gravity describes the way the world is. And listen, if you don't believe in gravity, you're not going to just float away. Right, sure. <laughs> it's still there doing its job. And the same thing is if you reject God and he's real, he's not going away. You may not believe in him, but he's still there. 
And so what I try to do in this book is lay out that story starting from the beginning, and it follows five main topics, which are the plot line of the story. Um, and that those topics are in basically one word, God, man, Jesus, cross, and resurrection. And here I mean final resurrection to reward and judgment. So you got the beginning and the end, then you have the important things in between. So we learn something about who God is and what his world is like, and that's the world we live in. We learn something important about man, that he's both beautiful, but he's broken. And because he's broken, he's guilty because the brokenness is moral and he caused it. So he is guilty and that's why he's been banished and he's in trouble and he's messed up the whole world. That's why there's a problem of evil. And um, when you think about it, our whole book is about, our whole story is about the problem of evil. And then God initiates a rescue plan. And what's key in our story is that man doesn't rescue himself. He can't do that. Every other story, man rescues himself. In this story, God rescues man by becoming a human being himself in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus, through the way he lived, he lived the life we should have lived but didn't. And the way he died, he took the punishment we should have received. But uh, but now we have opportunity for mercy. Um, but the way he lived and the way he died provides a solution. That's a rescue. And the decision that any person makes about Jesus determines where, what happens to them at the final resurrection. And, and that's either going to be perfect justice, which is punishment for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing, or perfect mercy, which is forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. So you see there, there's the outline of the book. There's the plot line of the story also, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. Easy to remember. Okay, throwing the ball so people can catch it. That the way I see this book, as why I think it's really a significant and important book, um, if that doesn't sound too self-serving. It's all good, yeah. Is <laughs> because, um, you know, over over half a century ago, wait a minute, no, let me just think here, uh, over 70 years ago, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, which is still one of the bestsellers. And it's meant to describe the kind of things that I describe here, but a lot of people won't read it because they think he's too hard, which drives me nuts because he's one of the one of the easiest reader uh, writers to read on t difficult topics, it seems to me, and very elegant and very insightful. But what I want to do is try to to fill that niche now in in uh, in the Christian's life who uh, isn't going to read Lewis and mere Christianity, maybe he'll read Kokel in the story of reality. So I'm standing on Lewis's shoulders, so to speak, and on the shoulders of other who, others who mentored me to try to then convey the story of reality in a way that people get. And by the way, this answers two questions that are really critical, and that is the problem of evil and why Jesus is the only way of salvation. And it answers the problem of evil because when you understand the story, we realize the world didn't start out that way. But because we disobeyed God, we broke the world. It's our fault, not God's. And so what God is doing is he's fixing it. It's a rescue plan first to rescue us, to fix us, and then he's going to fix the world that we broke. But that's a, a long-term plan. It's not right. going to happen tomorrow right. because rescuing us first is the most important thing. And it also tells us why Jesus is the only way of salvation. And simply put, he's the only one who solved the problem. <laughs> 
All right. And, um, and, and it's complicated problems or complex problems or singular problems, let me put it that way, often have singular solutions. Singular problems, problem of evil, often have singular solutions, Jesus rescuing us. And so all of this comes together in uh, in the book, The Story of Reality. In a way, I think people can grasp it, and non-Christians could understand it. Because you know, if you've read the book, there's not a lot of Christian lingo here. I don't sound like a Baptist or a Presbyterian or right. a Pentecostal right. or anything like that. I, I try to sound like a thoughtful person who's reflecting on issues that really matter. Well, and that's, that's the thing that I loved about the book after I finished it. I just read it here recently, is that it is very weighty while at the same time being very accessible. And guys, there, there's so much that we could go into in this book, but we've we've got limited time and more things to cover. But there is one section that is probably my favorite section of the book because I almost feel like you were screaming it as you were writing it because I just, I love this section so much. So I want to read the quote here. It's this. There is a saying that has been helpful in some ways, but I think it is misleading in this regard. The saying goes, God has a wonderful plan for your life. From what I understand now, that perspective is in the wrong order. The story is not so much about God's plan for your life as it is about your life for God's plan. Let that sink in. God's purposes are central, not yours. Once you are completely clear of this fact, many things are going to change for you. And so, Greg, my question to you is this. It's We live in such a, a me-centric world. There's yeah. so many mega church pastors, and I'm not picking on them necessarily, except I kind of am, that have sold millions and millions of books by making people feel that the focus that God has on them as opposed to the focus they should have on God and, and His plan. Why should we look at that in the opposite manner? Why should we look at it in the manner that you laid out in the book? Well, it's not just the books, too, but if you go to virtually any... Um, church service that is meant to appeal to the young or to the youth or tries to be hip. And there's a lot of churches like that. Um, If you listen to the songs, the songs are way weighted on singing about ourselves. And they're in first person, not the not plural. It's not we are singing to God. It's I am singing this song. Okay. Remember, Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. So we're corporate in the church, right? But we're singing individually, not corporately. That's one concern. That's similar to what you're talking about. And uh, and also, it's reporting our own feelings. It's all about how we feel, or maybe how we want to feel. And that's why we're singing the songs about feelings, so that we can start feeling this way. And there, it, the, the songs are, are, are anthropocentric. They're centered on man rather than theocentric or Christocentric. So that's another symptom uh, here. It, it's not universal, but there is certainly this trend. And everybody listening here who goes to church, I guarantee if you think about it, you'll see it. This Sunday when you listen to your church service online, hopefully, because most people can't gather together, then what you're going to do is you're not right now, at least, but what you're going to do is you're going to hear this quality of the songs. And it might be the first time you actually noticed it. The reason I put this in and it's at the beginning of the book that uh, towards the beginning, it's under the God section, because um, I, I make the point that our story starts with God in the beginning. God, why does the story start with him? It's because the story is about him. The story is not about us. And that's the lead-in to the citation that you just read. 
And I, uh, some might recognize a portion of that as, uh, as a part of a track that Campus Crusade uses, and I have used in the past many times. I haven't had it memorized, and I used it for evangelism, and it was helpful for evangelism 50 years ago. And it was probably maybe for some people nowadays, but times have changed quite a bit. But it starts out, the four spiritual laws, with this law. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I understand the the reason they start that way, because there is a sense in which it's true, and certainly God does love them, but you're starting with possible, with something positive. It's not like God hates you and has a hell of a plan for your life, you know, so there's, there's a plus there. But what has happened, I think, is as that idea seeped in a little deeper to people, they, the tail begins wagging the dog. We start thinking that, that the story of reality is about us and uh, getting our needs now, uh, met now, and, and, and having our best life now, to cite a title of a popular book from a teacher who has this kind of focus. And um, that's not what the book is about. The, the book is not about us. It's not about us getting our needs met. It's not about us feeling good. It's not about us going where we want to go. It's not about us getting a wonderful plan fulfilled in our life in the sense that most people think of wonderful personal plans nowadays. Does God have a wonderful plan? Yes, he does. But that plan, by the way, is going to include a lot of hardship and difficulty and suffering because that is the plan God uses to make us into someone, uh, some the people that are wonderful to inherit eternity as wonderful people. <laughs> the wonderfulness is not to be largely experienced in this life. And this is absolutely crystal clear when you read through the story. And particularly the New Testament, the promises that are made to God's people are promises of difficulty and hardship and suffering. And um, and so then when this happens to people who are followers of Christ and they are thinking that the story is about them, they get all they get all confused. And then they wonder, what happened? Where did God go? Right, what, right. What, what happened to my wonderful life? And they are misunderstanding the concept of wonderful life here. By the way, I'm not faulting Campus Crusade or what's called crew now. I think they're great people and have done great work. I'm just simply saying that this a statement that is true, it can be misunderstood in a way that that uh, gets people confused about the way things work. And so that's why I said it's not really about God's wonderful plan for our lives as much as it is about our lives for God's wonderful plan. And that means that that my needs and my concerns and my plans are secondary to God's purposes in the world. And by the way, we are all going to learn that sooner or later. We may not accept it, and we'll be grumpy all our lives, but we're going to learn it because that's the way God organizes things. He is going to make sure that his plans get fulfilled before our plans do. And if we don't see that's the way it works, we're going to have a lot of frustration until we get it straight. The tail does not wag the dog. Well, and there, there is a lot of power in order and the ordering of things. And so guys, that's just one section of this book. So again, that those are the, the two books for me that I would highly, highly suggest you get. But there were several times, there was something kind of I noticed when I was reading the story of reality that several times in the book, you mentioned social justice. And it's almost like you bring it up and, and you're, you seemingly are very perturbed by that whole movement, but you don't really go 
into a full-throated explanation of your grievance. But uh, here recently, uh, for those of you that have been paying attention, PragerU, you did a PragerU video uh, called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And it's already got several million views just here in the first few weeks. But you basically make the argument that tolerance in the year 2020 is essentially that you agree with politically correct or left-wing thinking. But really that in order to be genuinely tolerant of someone, you have to disagree with them. That disagreement is the key to tolerance. And without it, there, there is no true tolerance. It's just not possible. True tolerance is we don't treat all ideas as equally valuable, but we do treat all people as equally valuable. So as kind of a, you know, just a macro view of to what your video is, because obviously I'll put that in the show notes so guys can take a look at it. But why is that distinction so important when it comes to tolerance and there's some being some form of disagreement? Well, uh, yeah, you got to You must have watched the video a few times because that was a great outline that you offered um, quickly there. It's actually seen had three million views as of uh, yesterday. So at the two week market, it had three million viewers. I was really thrilled with that. And people who want to see it can go to PragerU.com and look at five minute videos. And I think it's the third one in the top row there, the intolerance of tolerance. Um, but but the, 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 the reason that that this is such an important thing to understand. There's a shell game going on with tolerance. And uh, what, what, what it passes for tolerance, tolerance now is not what true tolerance is, as you pointed out. Real tolerance is a virtue. But what people have done is they've twisted the definition of tolerance and in their favor. And then, then it still retains the feeling of a virtue because of the same word is being used. But this is kind of like doublespeak. Um, because the definition is actually just the opposite of true tolerance. And as you pointed out, tolerance nowadays, say, you can't disagree with my view. If you disagree with my view, you're not tolerant. If you think I'm wrong, you're not tolerant. If you think that you're right, you're not tolerant. Okay. And what that does is it's a tool. It's a name calling tool to silence opposition. That's all it is. It's a name calling tool. You intolerant person. To silence opposition. Notice, by the way, if we're talking about something like same-sex marriage and whether this is good for our culture or not, and then you give a view that's contrary to the politically correct view position, and they call you intolerant. Notice they've changed the subject because we were talking about a view, and when they call you intolerant, now they're talking about your character. So this is just simple name-calling. They've got off the topic and they're just calling names. I mean, what if they told me intolerant and I said, well, you're ugly. <laughs> now, I wouldn't actually say that, obviously, <laughs> even if they were, because it's for it's bad manners and it's not relevant because they could be really ugly and they still could be right. And I could be really intolerant. I could have all kinds of vices of my character and I could still be right about this point. But this is a shaming technique. It's an att- attempt to bully someone who doesn't believe the way uh, the, the kind of the aristocracy right now wants us to be the left left leaning aristocracy, and so they they bully us for all the anti bullying sentiment that they seem to uh, believe in or express. They're the biggest bullies on the planet, and this is one way they bully. And when they bully like this, it silences the view that we have, which is really important. And this is why we need to know the shell game that's going on so we can work around that shell game. And I have, even in the book of tactics, I have a tactical maneuver for dealing with the the challenge when people say that you're intolerant. 
that meant is meant to reveal the shell game and try to get us both back to business talking about the issue. And uh, by the way, if we don't, if we can't do that, then uh, then we're in big trouble because we're just not going to be allowed to speak our view because we'll be shouted down um, with character assassinations. Unfair, unreasonable, inaccurate character exact, uh, assassinations, by the way, because as you pointed out, if you want to express true tolerance, you cannot agree with the person. You do not tolerate people you agree with. You, you, you agree with them. You only tolerate people you disagree with, but choose to treat with respect and grace as human beings made in the image of God, um, even though they disagree with you. So this is a very, very important point. One, one other thing I want to add, because you brought up the point of social justice. I'm not against justice. I'm for justice. Social justice is a term of art. That means it's a very specialized term that is part of a broad philosophy called critical theory. And social justice is a way of amending the oppressive errors of what of Westerners past. I can't get into the whole thing here, but it's the idea that has totally consumed the academy and the minds of our young people. So, uh, I mean, I can't see your, your ethnicity. Let me just use myself as an example. I, as it turns out, Greg Kokel, no matter what character I have, no matter what, what virtues I display, I am among the worst of people on the planet. And the reason is, is one, because I'm white, two, because I'm male, three, because I'm cisgendered, that is, I'm sexually male, and I believe I'm male, <laughs> three, because I'm heterosexual, four, because I'm heteronormative, which means I think heterosexuality is right, and five, because I'm a Christian. Those are five huge marks against me just because of the groups that I belong in. I mean, some of them are beliefs, but mo most of them are, are things I can't control. The fact that I'm male, that I'm, I'm white, for example. But these things, just because I'm in the group, make me bad. That's critical theory. I'm an oppressor in virtue of that. And everybody that's not what I just described are people who are the oppressed. And what social justice is meant to do here's what that term means, is to repair the breach, is to exact from the oppressors um, a, a just payment to rectify the harms that have been brought on the oppressed victims, and that is anyone of color, anyone that has doesn't have um, standard uh, gender identifications or standard sexual practices, and on and on and on. This is why I don't use the term for, regarding my Christianity. Social justice, I believe in justice, and I believe in justice in social circumstances, but I don't believe in social justice that means something else. Thanks again for those answers, Greg. I really appreciate it. In addition to a lot of the things that you've talked about in this podcast, mm -hmm. one thing that you talk about quite often is the issue of abortion. And for right. me, as a as a pro-life Christian, uh, for me, I, a lot of times I'm pretty disappointed in how abortion is handled by most churches. I either feel like a lot of churches either kind of softly decry abortion and the evils of abortion, or, or they just don't discuss it at all. I mean, I've, I've even been in Sunday schools where people are kind of making the pro-abortion 
abortion arguments about, well, you know, in the case of rape and incest or, you know, well, if, if the mother's already poor and, and this is in my Sunday school, um, for, for you, uh, I guess I would ask, um, I'll just combine these two questions. I was going to ask you, what are some of the most common pro-life or, or pro or sorry, one of the most common pro-abortion or pro-choice arguments that you get and kind of how do you deal with them? And then I want to know what is the best argument that you've ever heard from a pro-abortion person and how did you deal with that as well? Well, I've never heard a good argument from the pro-abortion person to just to cut to the chase on that one. Uh, What I've heard is uh, things that are uh, emotionally, subjectively appealing. There's lots of good rhetoric and they play the rape card, for example, which is really, it's sad because this is one of the most egregious crimes that could ever be committed against any human being. And and we don't want to um, give the short shrift to the tragedy that this is in a person's life. Um, however, at, at, you know, it, 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 it is irrelevant to the question of abortion, and this will be clear in just a moment, but pro-aborts are using it as a rhetorical device to make people who believe killing an unborn child is wrong and make them look uh, heartless regarding the woman. Um, and so uh, anyway, so let me just back up a bit. You, unless a person understands the moral logic of the pro-life view, they are not going to be able to effectively and consistently deal with any of these other issues. There is a foundational issue here, okay? And so I want to give the moral logic. It's very simple. It's in the form of a syllogism, which is a straightforward argument, two statements and a conclusion, okay? And um, this is, the, this is the, the logic that a lot of Christians don't clearly understand, which is why they fall into these other errors. And here's the way that argument goes. It's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being. Okay. Now we can think of generalizations like if, you know, there's, there's friendly fire in a war. I mean, you did it, but you didn't try to, and that's what happens in circumstances like that, blah, blah, blah. But generally speaking, this is a truism. We can rely on this. Certainly it's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being for the reasons that people have abortions. Because they're poor, because they're, because they, um, because they don't they, it interferes with their career, uh, or blah 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 blah. We know the, the things, okay? So that's the first line. It's and, and most people agree with that. And you could ask them, do you think it's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being? Generally speaking, we can't just kill people at will. Yes, of course. That's that's I agree with that. Fine. Second premise: abortion takes the life of an innocent human being. Uh, nobody knows when life begins. Wait a minute. Is it a lot? Is it moving? Is it growing rather? Not moving. Is it growing? Yes. Well, then it's alive. The QED, that's the end of it. If it's growing, it's alive, period. You know, it's not a stalagmite or a stalactite that's growing for those kinds of reasons. It's a, it's, it's growing because it's biologically alive. Now we, we know it's alive. Okay. What is it? That's the key question. Uh, it's mom's body. No, it's not mom's body. You ever watch CSI? It, it, you look at the genetics. It's not mom's body. It's, some, it's someone else. Right. Doesn't have the same genes as mom. All right. It, it, it maybe have sexual organs of a male. Mom's not a male. Mom's a female. Okay. So, you know, I mean, obviously it's not mom. It's inside mom, but it's not mom. Okay. Um, and well, what what is it then? Well, the genetics show what it is. It's a human being. That's the fingerprint. 
uh, that's the signature. It's got a human signature. So we know there's no contest. This is just basic embryology. Scientifically, this is not contested. The unborn is an innocent human being. Okay. Notice I'm not using personal language. That's very misleading. Stick with the human being language. The reason is, is I don't think human beings are valuable because they're human, because they're persons. They have this additional quality called personhood. They're valuable because they're humans, period. Okay. So, uh, so if it's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being and abortion takes the life of an innocent human being, both factual statements, one, an ethical statement that people agree with, second one, a biological uh, scientific statement that's accurate, well, then abortion is wrong. That's the conclusion. It follows of necessity. That's right. our argument. Okay, now if we get this into our mind, the objections fall on either side of those syllogism, the, the premises. And I, I kind of quickly answered a few objections about whether it's alive and whether it's a human being and stuff like that. No, there they are. That's just science. You look closely at it. Well, maybe it's not wrong to kill an innocent human being. Maybe it's wrong to kill an innocent human person. So they're going to go back to the first premise. And so I'm going to ask a question. Okay, so it's okay to kill human beings who are not persons. Yeah, that's that's it. Okay, what's the difference? That's my question. What's the difference? What do you mean? What's the difference between a human being and a person? Oh, I don't know. Well, wait a minute. Right. You don't know? You just told me it's okay to kill human beings who are not persons. And But you don't know what the difference is? Maybe I should kill you. Maybe you're not one of those persons. Maybe you're in the way in the middle of the sidewalk for me, and I don't like that. And you're not a person, so I can kill you. No, but I am a person. Really? What makes you a person? Oh, then people are going to come up with all kinds of lists, but the lists are arbitrary. So, so there's, there's, just, there's my quick analysis. And by the way, when people try to raise uh, even Christians, well, what about rape and incest? So I'm at, then I ask them this question. Why do you think I think abortion is wrong? Well, you think it kills an innocent human being. I said, right, it does. Okay. So in the cases of rape and incest, would abortion still kill an innocent human being? Well, yeah. Okay, well then why would it be justified to kill that innocent baby because the baby was conceived under questionable circumstances? Right, it's the same. It's the exact same. Yeah. So, oh, well, they're poor. Okay. Um, If a woman is poor, can she kill her two-year-old? Well, no, of course not. Well, then why could she kill her, 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 uh, her unborn child at a different age in a different, in a little different location? Uh, what, why does age and location make a difference? So these are the kinds of questions I'm asking because I understand how this problem works because we have training on it at Standard Reason. Notice how I'm, I've got the idea, I've got a plan in my mind, and then I'm employing the plan also using questions when dealing with the issue. Well, and that's such an important distinction is using questioning because that goes back to what we talked about earlier with tactics. I recorded a podcast a while back called Answering 17 Pro-Choice Arguments. And the thing about that is every single one of the arguments, I gave the the listener questions that they could ask in response as as a, for instance, well, what about in the case of rape or incest? A good kind of direct question is, should a a child be, be given the death penalty for the sins of its father? 
Right. Like nobody right. would agree with that. Like if my dad goes and knocks, o- uh, knocks over a liquor store and, and, and kills the guy in the process, I don't go to jail. I don't get the death penalty. Sure, like that's not any sure. one of those things. But when, when you have questions that gets you deeper into the conversation, but also when you ask a question, the listener has to reckon with their own ideology. And if their right. ideology is, is faulty, it'll become very apparent. And again, if they have any elect intellectual honesty inside of them, they're going to have to reckon with that directly. And, uh, that I, I love that, that you went into that in, in your explanation there. And, uh, to wrap up here, Obviously, this is a man's podcast. It's called a man's podcast. The overwhelming majority of our listeners are men. We talk about spiritual, mental, and physical resilience all the time. And so on the subject of manhood, one of the reasons why we even started this ministry is because a lot of men that we've talked with kind of have this dichotomy in their brains. It, It might be false, but it is their dichotomy that you can be a man or you can be a Christian. And they, they go into these churches and they see the, the softness of, of Christ's followers. They see the softness of the pastors and, and the worship ministers. They just seem like really soft guys. The pastor just can't even bring themselves to talk about the Lion of Judah. They just run to the Lamb of God and, and they only want to talk about the Lamb of God. So from your perspective, as we wrap up here, last question of the day, what, what is the state of masculinity in the modern day church? And, and what would you say to those men that might have that dichotomy in their brain that is, you know, maybe a stumbling block for them discovering Jesus? Well, I, I, I think there's a lot of confusion and it's complicated now by the notion that even being male and female is considered a social construction. It's interesting that that is, it's just an invention of society and has nothing to do with body parts. So being a female has nothing to do with having a uterus, being able to lactate and have children. Has nothing to do with that. Being a male has absolutely nothing to do with having testicles. Not in the modern thinking. It's all—it's just bizarre. It's crazy. Um, and so consequently, with all the confusion, and by that way, that's the nature of the recent confusion, but even in the last 50 years, there has been a feminizing of males. And uh, an attempt of culture to make women and men um, be exactly the same. There's no difference. Uh, I remember seeing, uh, and you see this in films all the time, virtually every movie you watch, the person in charge is a woman. And in every action movie, there is always at least one woman who's got, uh, you know, who's she's she's got this unbelievable figure. She's really skinny and she's really stacked and she's and she weighs about 98 pounds, but she can throw 300 pound guys left and right <laughs> over her shoulders. You of know, course, this of is- course. This is Hollywood, okay? And I keep telling my daughters, honey, this is Hollywood. This is not reality. But why are they doing that? Because they're trying to erase the dist- – and by the way, and women are just as cold-blooded either killers uh, in the bad sense or killers in the defensive or um, in good sense. They're the killer heroes. They can kill with impunity without even thinking about it, just like a guy can. There is no difference, okay? That's what they're trying to tell you. But of course, there is a difference. It doesn't mean that women can't do the kinds of jobs that men can do, but men and women have different natures. That means they are born with a different set of wiring and uh, wiring both, I think, physically and soulishly. Because God intended different things for men, generally speaking, and women, generally speaking. Okay? And so I'm speaking in generalities here. I'm not saying a woman can't be a leader or can't be a great 
um, a, a, a great soldier, so to speak. Uh, I just I'm just finishing a book called A Woman of No Importance about the probably the most significant spy behind the lines in the war in the in the Eastern Theater, the Western Theater rather in Europe um, before and after D-Day. She was unbelievable, Virginia Hall, and what she was able to accomplish. Um, and but so women could do these things. This, I'm talking in general terms here. Because if we lose the general idea, then we all get lost in the in the, the mix up. And this is why this is a pro- part of the problem we have right now. So men and women have natures and, and, and the natures dictate the general kinds of capabilities they have. Okay. Women reproduce. Human beings have long gestation times, nine months. And we have a long time before the the uh, the offspring become adults, you know, thirteen to fourteen years in terms of bio- biology, <laughs> twice that long according to sociology, right? Okay, and so that means women who bear the children and who nurse and care have to have the capability to do that and give their time to that. So they need protectors and providers that will. Pro- protect and provide for the family. And so in the nature of a woman is to protect and guard. And this is why mom doesn't want kids to go to war, but dad is willing, you know, you go fight the battle, boy, you know, knock them out. They have a different point of view because mom's keeping them in the nest and dad's pushing them out of the nest. And we need both because there's a balance there. And that's how good children get raised into good adults. Okay. So let me just focus on manhood here because that's the main question that you're asking about. Um, What is the nature of, of human beings? And by the way, this is easy to tell because all we have to do is make some observations that are not distracted by the nonsense from the culture. Men are fighters. Men are leaders. They are can do. They go out and do things. And when I say men are leaders, I'm talking about their nature. I'm not talking about every individual man. Some men abrogate that. They're overly feminized. Okay. And they don't take the lead when they ought to be taking the lead. And instead, the woman takes the lead in their home. That creates an inappropriate imbalance in my view. Okay. But just to finish this list, which I wrote down very quickly when you're asking the question. We are fighters and we are leaders. We are problem solvers and we are providers. We are fighters, we're leaders, we're problem solvers, and we're providers in no particular order. Okay? Men go to battle. Doesn't mean women can't fight, but it's the man's job to protect the home. The man goes out while the wife while the woman protects the brood. Okay? The man brings stuff back to provide for the brood. Okay? When there are big problems. They both can solve problems, but the man is, I think, uh, more capable, more in a position to address those things and lead the family. Okay. Somebody's got to lead. I mean, egalitarianism in any circumstance, whether it's families or governments or jobs, businesses or military, everybody's the same. Nothing gets done. Somebody's got to make the final decision about things. Hopefully they do so in a benevolent and wise way. And that's one liability of leadership. But the thing is, there's no other choice or else nothing gets done. So I think what God has done is designed men to be leaders, to be problem solvers, to be providers, and to be fighters. Fighters in the best sense of the word. Not fighting against the innocent, 
but fighting against the threats. And that's what keeps the family safe. And every single one of these things are being attacked right now, one way or another in our culture. And what that means is, Kyle, is that men are then less capable to lead, to provide, to solve problems, and to fight when necessary. Well, I certainly appreciate you going in and elucidating that for us. And, and I certainly appreciate you being on the front lines of that fight with the things that you're doing with Stand a Re- with Stand a Reason and also with the things that you have going on uh, just in your ministry and the things, even with YouTube and your in your books, this puts you on the front lines of that. And Greg, we've, we've talked about so many different things. We've covered a lot of ground in this podcast, but that's yeah. all for me. Is there anything <laughs> else you want to get off your chest? Well, uh, only to say that if they'd like to go to Stand to Reason website, it's str.org, uh, str.org, Stand to Reason, str.org. And uh, um, you did such a good job, Kyle, with the interview that I think we covered most of the, just about all of the really important bases and then some. Nobody's ever asked me about about manhood before. So I'm glad that you asked that and I got a chance to uh, give people a piece of my mind on that. Well, I appreciate you giving us your answers and I'm pretty sure we've solved all the world's problems up to this point, but uh, (laughs) Greg Kokel, thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. You're so welcome, Kyle. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening all the way through, man. That was such, such a great interview to be a part of. I really hope that you enjoyed it. But before we let you guys go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So I'm going to run down the links that I've got for you. I've got the link to the Stand to Reason website. I've got the link to the two books that we talked about, Tactics and the Story of Reality. We've also got a bunch of different videos. So we talked about that PragerU video, The Intolerance of Tolerance. I got that for you here. We've also got a bunch of just random ones. There's one of him just discussing, it's kind of a longer interview about tactics. There's a video of him basically destroying Deepak Chopra on live television, which was amazing. There's some other ones, the question that stops Christians in their tracks. Greg Kokel versus Pro-Choice Caller, which is a fantastic way to show you how to deal with a lot of people that are on the pro-abortion side of things. But then I've also got a link to his Facebook, his Twitter account, and the Standard Reason YouTube channel. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please go ahead and leave us a quick five-star review and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2020 and into the beginning of 2021. So if you want me to come speak to your team on your podcast at your men's event, just hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, that's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. The website is www www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life or Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Roar!